All right, Habakkuk chapter three. Let's read the whole text together before we jump into it and really begin studying it, starting out in verse one all the way through verse 16 for today. Verse one, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of your mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. And as Habakkuk the prophet had this vision of you, an encounter with you, we would also confess today, Lord, we want and need to encounter you afresh in the times that we're in, in the chaos that we see or the things that we don't understand, we need, Lord, an encounter with you, a vision of you. We pray that this song that this man sung over 2,000 years ago would be a song that we can sing and relate to so that we might come to the conclusions that he came to as well. So we ask, Lord, for the help of your Holy Spirit as we seek to digest and understand your holy word. Thank you for giving it to us, Lord. Every word of it breathed out by you and profitable for life today. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, songs or music, they have an impact on us. You know, some music can aid concentration. There are certain styles of music that I know I'll listen to when I'm deep into a study session. Uh, Some music is great for relaxation, to have on in the background as you're just trying to chill. Uh, Some music is perfect for a road trip. I know for myself, when I'm driving the family late at night and everybody else is asleep in the back, I love to put the headphones in and listen to some 90s punk to keep me awake and alert. Some music belongs in the gym. You know, there's a reason that we play reggae at the beach and we don't usually play Mozart while we're doing CrossFit. Uh, There are just certain styles of music that are appropriate for a certain setting. Songs impact our lives. They impact our mood and our spirit. The reason I'm mentioning this is because the prayer that we just read is a song. There are so many clues within it that it is in song form. First of all, it's laid out as poetry. Second of all, at the end of the chapter, Habakkuk says, play this according to stringed instruments. Thirdly, three times throughout the passage, he uses this word selah, which is likely meant to be a musical, dramatic pause, a time of reflection in the midst of the song. And lastly, he begins this prayer by saying, according to shigianoth, which doesn't mean anything to us, but the word is related to a phrase meaning to reel to and fro. All of that put together causes many to think that what Habakkuk is writing is a chaotic, up-tempo, aggressive song that concludes in total serenity. I think that this pace and rhythm and sound and vibe was meant to communicate what he was going through internally. The book of Habakkuk has showed us a man who complains to God at the beginning about the state of God's people. God surprises Habakkuk then by saying, I'm not going to revive the people in a way that you prefer, but I'm going to send a worse people, the Babylonian armies, to invade my people and carry them off into captivity. That will be my methodology for revival. Habakkuk reels and argues with God about what God says to him before God then reveals in chapter two that the righteous will live by their faith and that ultimately the Babylonians and any who are like them will be judged finally and in the end by God. And Habakkuk, as he hears all of this, his brain is swirling like a violent and up-tempo song. He's a, a chaotic realm of lyrics and mood and spirit until at the end of his song, he calmly concludes, I will wait for God to bring judgment upon those who invade us. I think the song would have sounded wild to the original hearers, but it ended with this calm hope and trust in God. Habakkuk didn't come to this calm hope and trust in God because all of a sudden he now understood everything he needed to understand. No, but he had an encounter with the living God, and that's what this chapter is all about. So how can this hope, as it developed in Habakkuk, also develop in us? Well, there are three things that Habakkuk went through. There was a prayer that he prayed that's found in verse 2. 
Then there was a sight that he saw, a vision. That's the bulk of the chapter. And then there was a confession that he made, lastly, and we'll consider that confession as well this morning. So let's think first about the prayer that we must pray if we want to come to that place of firm hope that Habakkuk came to. The prayer is found in the second verse, if you look at your Bibles with me. He told God that he feared everything that God had said. He understood everything that God had said about the coming Babylonian invasion and the captivity of the people of Israel. He knew that God would eventually judge Babylon. And then he prays this prayer in verse two, the first part of it being, in the midst of years, revive it. What is Habakkuk praying for when he says to God, God, in the midst of these years, in the midst of all this chaotic stuff where Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean or Babylonian armies are breathing down our necks and attacking us battle after battle. As kings are going down, as people are being taken into captivity, and as we find ourselves there for a period of years, what is it that you're doing during this time? What was it that Habakkuk wanted to have revived? What he wanted revived was God's people. You see, what Habakkuk was praying for here in the first part of his prayer was for a revival to unfold in the congregation. What he's saying to God is, God, even though all that is going to happen to us, my prayer is that as it happens to us, we would become better. We would become purified. That the chaos and the upheaval that we're experiencing would be your instrument to revive us to wake us up, that the Babylonians would be like smelling salt cracked underneath our noses, alerting us, making us alive afresh to the things of God. And I believe that this prayer of Habakkuk for revival amid chaos is a great prayer for us to pray whenever we as the church enter into chaotic times, whether personally or collectively together in the societies and cultures that we live in, we must see that chaos as a potential instrument in the hand of God to wake us up to the things of the Lord. Like Paul said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter four, arise, O sleeper. We must allow God to awaken us through the chaos that is. That's the first thing that Habakkuk prayed for. But he also prayed in verse two for a second thing. He prayed, in the midst of the years, these years of chaos and calamity, in the midst of these years, make it known. What was that prayer for? Well, I think what Habakkuk is asking God to do is to give knowledge to God's people about what God was doing in the midst of those chaotic and confusing times. You see, when God said what he was planning to Habakkuk, he was confused, and he's a prophet. He's a man of God. There are even indications that he was also a priest, so he's learned in the things of God and the, and the word of God. Yet, even himself, he was off balance because of what God has said. And so here he's praying, he's saying, God, I'm gonna tell the people what you said, but I pray that the knowledge of what you're doing and understanding of what you're doing would be felt among the congregation. Help them to understand that as you use the Babylonians to purify them, you are doing some of your best work. 
I think in a sense, Habakkuk was praying that the congregation would agree with 1 Peter 4, 17, which says that judgment from God must first begin at the household, with the house of God itself. We must believe this and have this knowledge and understanding. In the opening chapter of the first Harry Potter book, J.K. Rowling sets the stage where young Harry Potter doesn't really know about his past or his powers, and he's living with some relatives who really don't like magic of any kind, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. And one day, Mr. Dursley, he starts seeing all of these things throughout the day that indicate to him that there might be magic about, and he hates it. He just can't stand it. He's not that kind of guy, and he's panicked. He's afraid. He's worried that Harry's past is catching up with his family, and as he lies down to go to sleep that night, he's having a conversation with himself about it, and he convinces himself that Harry's family knows that his family can't have anything to do with that kind of life. J.K. Rowling wrote this. She said, he knew that it couldn't affect him, but how very wrong he was. And as Christians, we must come to the conclusion that if we say that the judgment of God cannot affect us, that it can only affect them, how very wrong we would be. God is attempting to do some of his best work as we experience the chaos of our time. Now, the last part of Habakkuk's prayer is in the little line in verse two where he says, in wrath, remember mercy. You know what that is? That's a prayer that even though they would go through these chaotic times, he wants them to experience God's mercy in the midst of those chaotic times. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to be invaded, to be carried off into captivity, to see that kind of brutality and force executed right there in your midst. And so Habakkuk wanted to pray that God, in the midst of that chaos for God's people, would give them mercy, grace, that they'd experience God's power in the midst of such chaos. And God answered that prayer. One example of this mercy amid chaos is found in the story of Daniel's three friends in the book of Daniel. While they were in Babylon, they were forced to decide. We must either bow to a statue that looks very similar to King Nebuchadnezzar, or we must burn in a furnace that has been prepared for those who refuse to bow. Now, they told Nebuchadnezzar that God could save them from the fire. They didn't know if he would save them from the fire, but they knew that they could not bow down to his idol. They couldn't be guilty of the sin of idolatry. They couldn't break one of God's sacred commandments. This infuriated Nebuchadnezzar, and he threw them into the furnace. But God walked with them and preserved their lives. What they were given was mercy amid the chaos. And I think we too can ask God for mercy in the tumultuous times that we are in. God said in Isaiah 43, verse two, he said, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, they shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I think we need to take passages like that and claim them, pray them, say, God, 
would you help us? We feel as a people that we're passing through the fire, but we're asking that we would not be burned. Give us the mercy that we need in the chaos that we're in. So what did Habakkuk pray for? He didn't pray that God would change his mind about the Babylonians, but he prayed for revival among God's people. He prayed for the knowledge of God and his plans to spread among God's people. And he prayed for God's people to feel and experience the tangible hand, the mercy of God upon their lives as they were going through the times of chaos. So that's what he prayed. But what did he see? That's really the bulk of what we read this morning. Uh, It's found in the verses of the song in verse three through 15. Uh, The bottom line of verse three through 15 is that Habakkuk saw or had a vision of God. Um, This is called a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of God's presence. He wasn't seeing the full blast of God's glory. Nobody can see that and survive on this side of eternity. But he was seeing, with all the appropriate veils and imagery, he was seeing God. Now, it's a difficult passage to interpret with a high level of of certainty. And one reason for that is because all throughout, as Habakkuk is talking about his vision of God, he uses poetry. I mean, this is art form that he's using. And with artistic flair, it's sometimes hard to know what events Habakkuk is talking about or alluding to with each verse. For instance, is he talking all about the past when God destroyed Egypt, I'm sure as we read through this, there were certain things that made you think about the time of the Exodus. Or is Habakkuk looking forward as a prophet to the time that God would judge, as he said he would, the Babylonians? Or is Habakkuk going all the way forward, even past our time, into the ultimate future judgment, which Revelation 17 and 18 tells us, will be the judgment of a world system also called by God Babylon when Christ returns. What is it that Habakkuk is seeing? It's hard to say with any strong degree of certainty. It's like if this song were a painting, it would not be like da Vinci's Mona Lisa, you know, a realist painting. There she is clearly for us today. If we saw her walking around today, we'd say, hey, I recognize you, you're Mona Lisa. Uh, It's not like that, it's more like Van Gogh's Starry Night. Impressionism, you you know what you're seeing, a starry night, but you understand that's not exactly how it would look if I saw that same image with my own two eyes. And Habakkuk's prayer seems to have this impressionistic or kaleidoscoping nature to it. Poetic, but instructional, clear, but transcendent, today, right now, but tomorrow, earthly, but divine. It does seem, though, that a lot of it does, at least in part, allude to what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Let me show you, in a few verses, what I'm talking about, if you'd follow along in your Bibles. In verse three, he says that he sees God arrive from a place called Timon and Mount Paran. Now, Babylon would come in from the north to invade Israel, but these locations were to the south, way south past 
the Dead Sea. That's the region where God originally arrived at Mount Sinai so many years earlier. And it seems like he's thinking about that time when God arrived at Mount Sinai after the Exodus, because when God came, there was lightning and thunder and glory from God descending upon that mountain. And look what he says in verse four. He says, God's brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. And then remember before Mount Sinai, what had God done? He had delivered them from their Egyptian captivity, partly through 10 plagues that he rained down upon the Egyptians. Well, look at verse five. He says, before God went pestilence. Before God came, there was pestilence. And then remember how after God arrived at Mount Sinai, they went into a time of wandering in the wilderness, sometimes disobedient to God, and in their disobedience, they experienced plague as a hand of God's judgment themselves. And it says in verse five, plague followed at his heels. Even the most immovable obstacles were removed at the original Exodus and their eventual arrival at the promised land. And he alludes to this in verse six and seven. He says that God measured the earth or the land, the promised land. He gave Israel their share. He shook the nations that were inside of the promised land and neighboring tribes and nations like Kushan and Midian, they trembled and were afflicted as God did these things. And when God was doing all of this, he at various moments affected bodies of water, didn't he? He turned the Nile River into blood. He parted the waters of the Red Sea. He held back the waters of the Jordan River. And Habakkuk asks the question in verse eight, he says, God, was your wrath against the rivers or the sea? It was a rhetorical question. God's wrath wasn't against the water, it was against the nations. But Instead, Habakkuk saw that the time of the Exodus was a time, like he said in verse nine and 10, where God took out his bow and arrows, causing the earth to writhe under the intensity of his work. He even alluded to a beautiful little episode in the book of Joshua, when Joshua went into the promised land and the nations came to attack them. They were in a long battle one day, winning a victory for the people of Israel, and Joshua prayed for the sun to stand still. And you remember there that story in verse 11 when he says that God caused the sun and the moon to stand still, likely during that battle of Joshua. What Habakkuk was doing here, at least in part, was recalling who God is. And remembering all these things about God filled Habakkuk with hope. He's praising God here for his past work. You might remember that in chapter one, when God told Habakkuk that the Babylonians were coming to judge them, Habakkuk said to God, how can you be so weak as to let them destroy the nations like a fisherman catching fish? But with stories from Exodus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua in his mind, Habakkuk began to remember afresh that God is not weak, but God is strong. God had defeated Pharaoh, God had defeated the nations, and he certainly was not any weaker than Babylon. And I think a lot of times we need a fresh vision of God's power. 
I mean, at least in part, you'd have to say that Habakkuk got his fresh vision of God's power and might from the Bible, from the word of God. I'm not saying that he just sat down and said, I'm gonna read through this thing, but because he had read this book so often, he had a vision that was related to what he could have found in the word of God. And he found a powerful God. He found a God that is not like a kind, old, grandfatherly figure who is frail and powerless. No, he found a powerful being. He found a God that is less like a warm sunset who gives me good feelings and more like a nuclear shockwave. That's what he's seeing as he sees God. He sees God as the sovereign of sovereigns, as the king of kings, and as the Lord of lords. But that past work it also comforted Habakkuk about God's future work. This is where I think we could say that there is a telescoping nature to Habakkuk's prophecies. It not only looked backwards to what God did to Egypt, but forward to what God would do to Habakkuk's Babylon and even past Habakkuk's Babylon to the world system that Christ labels Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. In other words, God's past is prologue for what he will do one day again. Our family, we have, uh, five years ago, we uh, adopted a little dog from the SPCA. We named him Max. Uh, he's a mix, but he's totally a Jack Russell Terrier. And uh, I think that they knew at the SPCA that a lot of people are afraid of Jack Russell Terriers because they have unlimited amounts of energy in their very mischievous dogs. So on the door at the SPCA of his little kennel, it said Chihuahua. <laughs> he does not look like a Chihuahua at all, but we went for it. We took the bait, and he is a feisty little troublemaker. And a few weeks ago, I had to take him to the vet. He had a little eye condition that he couldn't shake. And as we were waiting in the room, the vet opened the door, and she had his chart, and she was laughing. She was just chuckling. And she was laughing because usually he's not there because he's sick. Usually he's there because he did something to endanger himself. And she was reading his chart. Oh, Max got into a hornet's nest. Oh, Max ate a bunch of chocolate. Oh, Max ate a bunch of bubble gum. Like, just this list on and on of like, we're here with, you know, Max, you know, again, kind of thing. And she was very amused at our little troublemaker. And all of his past, for us as a family, is prologue for what he'll be like until the day that he dies. You know, no, no one in our house is gonna be shocked the next time he, you know, like, I won't come home and someone will say, you'll never believe it. Today, Max dug the biggest hole in the backyard and stuck his face in it and he's all muddy. I won't be surprised at all because his past helps me understand what he will be like in the future. And in a much different and more holy way, God's past is his prologue. Habakkuk looked back and he saw how God had judged Egypt. How God had judged the nations in the promised land for their idolatry and evil. And he became comforted that God would do it again. And we can look back not only at what God did to Egypt, 
but what God did to Habakkuk's Babylon. And we can know that God will discipline all nations and drive out all evil one day. His past is his prologue. Now, as he was thinking about God, Habakkuk began to realize that God ultimately is a great rescuer, and he saw the way that God had rescued his people in the past. He said in verse 13 of this warrior God, he said, you came out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You came to save your people, and you came to save your anointed. I think if we consider what he's saying there, it points us afresh to Jesus. How did God save his people? By saving his anointed, by saving his Messiah. Not by saving him from the cross, but by allowing him to go through the cross and then raising him from the dead. The resurrection life of Jesus leads to the resurrection life of his people. What Christ accomplished, we accomplish by placing our faith and trust in him. Because he rose, we also will rise. And Habakkuk also saw that the way that God did this was, look at verse 13, to crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That's exactly how God goes about the process of saving us. He goes after the core, the heart, the head of the issue. Like he said in Genesis 3.15, he promised immediately after sin entered into the world that he would crush Satan, crush his head under his feet at the cross. And I love this. Habakkuk saw another part of God's salvation methodology when he said in verse 14 that he saw God pierce the enemy with his own arrows. This is God. He defeats his enemies with their own weapon. We see this hinted at in different stories in the Old Testament, like the story of Daniel and the lion's den. There were politicians that were jealous of Daniel's fame, Daniel's favor, Daniel's success. And so they plotted a law that was written in stone, so to speak, that said, if anybody prayed to anybody else except the king for 30 days, they'd have to be thrown into the lion's den, knowing that Daniel would for sure be praying to the God of Israel during those 30 days. The king loved Daniel, but when he made a law, it was written as if it was written in stone. The law was above the king himself, and so he couldn't change the law. And so regretfully, he threw Daniel into a lion's den when Daniel was caught praying to God. But God closed the mouths of the lions. The next morning, the king came, Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel said, fear not, king. My God has saved me. An angel of the Lord stood with me this night. The king took Daniel out of the lion's den and then took those conspirators and threw them into the very same den that they had prepared for Daniel. And they did not meet the same fate as our man Daniel. In the book of Esther, there's a story of a politician named Haman who hated every Jew throughout the world all because a Jewish man named Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him in reverence and honor. And because he had the ear of the king, he was able to plot a certain law so that on a specific day, every Jew throughout the empire could be plundered, their goods taken away from them by law, 
by force. But what the man Haman didn't understand was that Esther, the beloved queen of the king, was a Jew herself, whose uncle was that same man, Mordecai. Now, Haman had built gallows so that Mordecai could be hanged on them on that specific day. But when Esther intervened and told the king of this plot, the king reversed the law so that the Jews could defend themselves and then ordered that Haman be hung from the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. The weapon that the enemy planned turned and used against him. And all of this, of course, foreshadows and brings us to the ultimate moment that God did this at the cross of Christ. The very instrument that the powers of God thought would defeat God was used for their own demise in the cross of Jesus. God is the great rescuer, and Habakkuk is coming to terms with that reality once again. I think you could say it like this. At this point, Habakkuk has his eyes on God. You remember how the book began? He had a vision. He had his eyes on Israel, and he was depressed. Then, because of what God showed him, he had his eyes on Babylon, and he was terrified. But now he has his eyes on God, and he's beginning to be brought to a place of peace. Brothers and sisters, this is a struggle and fight that we have to always enter into, amen, where we perpetually, repeatedly get our eyes back upon the greatness of our God and his sovereign plans in this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite old, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite old dead preachers. <clears throat> he ministered in England and primarily in London in the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, including in the period right after World War II. And it was a scary time in the world because communism was rapidly spreading throughout the world, especially Eastern Europe. And a lot of people in the UK, including many Christians, were deeply concerned. They were frightened by this advance. And Martin Lloyd-Jones took that opportunity to preach through the book of Habakkuk to his congregation. And he had this to say, about the chapter we're in today. He said, it is thoroughly unbiblical and unspiritual to look only at the obviously godless. Christian people and leaders tend to give the impression that there's only one problem, communism. They have fallen into the error into which Habakkuk fell for a while, saying that the church isn't perfect, but look at communism. The church isn't all she ought to be, but look at that. They, therefore, see no need for self-humiliation. Many see only one problem, that of the Babylonians, the communists. And so long as they are looking at them, they are not ready to humble themselves. But Habakkuk had finally humbled himself because he'd gotten his eyes back on God. When he saw God, he realized the gap. He realized all that needed to happen inside of himself, all of the reviving that needed to occur within. At the beginning of the book of Habakkuk, he's reasoning with God on human terms, but now he's just content to let God be God. He's impressed with God. And this leads us finally to the confession that Habakkuk confessed. 
We're gonna consider, like I said, verse 17, 18, and 19 next week, which to me are some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. Uh, But the beginning of this confession is found in verse 16. He said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Augustine once called God the doctor at the core of his being. And I think Habakkuk at this moment is saying, God as a surgeon is at the very core of who I am. He is messing with me right now. I'm shaking, I'm trembling. He is dealing with me deep within. It appears that Habakkuk has been moved by God. But also it appears that he perhaps didn't like everything that God had said. He's reeling over God's promise to judge his people and send them into exile in Babylon. This news from God, it seems, even caused a physical sickness or anxiety in Habakkuk. But though he confessed that he was made sick by God's declarations, he determined, I'm going to wait for God to defend and protect us as his people. He has new resolve as a prophet. He'll wait for the day of judgment to come. He was pained by the current reality, but because he'd seen God, he was confident in how the story would end. He's trusting in the Lord. In 1993, Steven Spielberg finally won an Oscar for Best Director. By that time, he was very successful. He directed Jaws and E.T., the whole Indiana Jones franchise, and one of his most underrated works, the movie Hook. (laughs) Tell me you love it. He'd been a huge and massive success, but he'd not yet been recognized by the Academy. But in 1993, he released Schindler's List a sober film centered on the Holocaust. And the Academy finally thought that his work was serious enough to receive their recognition. And a lot of people attribute his long wait for that recognition to the upbeat nature and the happy endings of his earlier films. Though the popular masses loved his movies, the critics were looking for something real, something earthy something painful, something authentic, something free of syrupy sentimentalism. But I wonder if both the popular attraction to the happy ending and the critical desire for a raw or real or rugged story, I wonder if both of those desires are right. Could it be that we're meant as God's people to both recognize the reality of pain and look forward to the removal of it. Habakkuk, I think, entered into that sphere in this prayer that we studied this morning. He recognized the pain of today as he looked around at what God was doing and held fast to the hope of tomorrow. He saw things in the here and now that grieved him to his core and he cried out to God about them but his vision of God helped him look forward to God's forever kingdom. Habakkuk 
would not sit idly by and let the world pass by either. He worked hard to make life better today. He was working as a prophet after all, trying to influence change today, all while recognizing that it would ultimately take God's intervention to solve the deepest ills in humanity. He began this book with hopelessness, but he's ending this book with hopefulness. And he sang the song that we studied today as a way to renew his hope within, writing it down, I think, so that future generations, including us, could use its lyrics to cultivate a hope of our own. I've said this many times, you guys know this, but Jesus came with a kingdom. When he came to earth and began his public ministry, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But even though Jesus' kingdom is here, it's not yet fully here, is it? It's like we're living perpetually in between the Friday of his crucifixion and the Sunday of his resurrection. It's like we're continually on that Saturday, able to say, praise God, the cross has come. Praise God, his first coming has happened but we're waiting for the great and final and ultimate second coming and resurrection of all things with Christ. The greatness of his work on the cross is available now, but the glory of the final resurrection of his people and the destruction of every rule and authority and power is not yet. But just as surely as Friday has come, so will the Sunday of his resurrection when Jesus will like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, put every enemy under his feet, including the last and final enemy of death. So though it sometimes feels dark on Saturday, we rejoice that Friday's cross has come and we trust that Sunday's resurrection will arrive. And when you see what you see and you're discouraged by what you're discouraged by, Preach to yourself the words, Sunday is coming. The great and final resurrection will arrive.